This sermon, We Are Reformed, was preached by Derek Overstreet on Sunday, August 1st, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Well, good morning, everybody. It's your first time here this morning. We are glad that you are here. We pray that you are impressed with and amazed by nothing but the one whom we are impressed with and amazed by, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Open up your Bibles to Ephesians 1. This morning we'll be looking at verses 3 through 14 as we begin our Grounded series. As you're opening, listen to this story. It was the first day of training camp. The year was 1961. 38 members of the Green Bay Packers football team arrived to start a brand new season. The previous season ended horribly for the Packers, who squandered a lead to the to lose to the NFL championship, to lose the NFL championship to the Philadelphia Eagles. This, however, was a new season, and the players arrived at training camp with great expectations of playing better, smarter, and with more effective plays. Their coach, Vince Lombardi, had a different idea, and the author goes on to describe Vince Lombardi. He says, he took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all when he said this, gentlemen, this is a football. It doesn't get any more fundamental than that. For a group of NFL players. This is a football. It's an iconic story about the importance of fundamentals. The 1961 Packers were a great football team. They knew the game. Their players were some of the best players in the game. The last game they had played before these iconic words was the championship. The 1961 Packers were a good football team. But Coach Lombardi took nothing for granted. He knew how easy it was to be distracted and lose sight of their foundations as a football team. Well, your pastors believe the time is right for our own this-is-a-football moment. You know, as I think back on the last 18 months, in so many ways, God has been merciful, hasn't he, to our church. And all the chaos of the last 18 months, the uncertainty, God has been merciful to us. Here we are. Here's the proof. We're still standing. We are still here by the grace of God. But at the same time, like so many other churches, the last 18 months, if we're honest, 
Well, the last 18 months have left us distracted, some isolated, and all of us in different ways, and as a church, weakened. Spiritual complacency, pessimism instead of faith, and indifference instead of passion, those things are real church killers. And so for the next six months, we are going to both celebrate God's grace that we have seen and that we see, the abundant grace of God that is so clear in our church as we reestablish ourselves foundationally. And we're going to do that really in three words. Three words, grounded, focused, and hopeful. Grounded, focused, and hopeful. First, grounded. We're going to spend the coming weeks Grounding ourselves in truth. We're beginning this morning grounding ourselves, and as Tim says, those are primary biblical convictions that we call our, our shared values. We call them shared values because we share them with our family of churches, sovereign grace churches. But there's seven biblical values that are rooted in Scripture and define us, ultimately beginning with the gospel that we'll hear about next week, that define us as a church. And then focused focused on our purpose. Once we're done with the Grounded series, we're going to take a look at the book of Haggai. Two chapters, four sermons to look at God's people returning from exile and getting back to God's work that he had for them. And our prayer is as we look at the, at the Old Testament and the prophet and God's people there that that their example will remind us what we are called to and why what we're called to is absolutely worth everything that we have. And then finally, hopeful. Grounded, focused, and then hopeful. Hopeful for what? Hopeful for fruit. We're going to look, we're going to preach through the first 12 chapters of Acts that the Spirit of God might inspire us and compel us as we take a look at his work in the early church as they grounded themselves in the gospel and focused on their mission, even in very difficult times. So that's your, where are we going over the next six months? That's where we're going, church. We're going to get back to fundamentals, and we are beginning in Ephesians 1. So with your Bibles open there, would you stand and pray? Stand and pray. Would you stand and read with me? This morning we're going to be looking at verses 3 through 14. And and just so you know, this is one long and glorious sentence in the original. So Paul was on a roll here. Look what he says, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved." In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Maybe seated. Please pray with me. Well, Lord, your word teaches us that the public preaching of your word is a primary means ordained by you to encourage and correct and disciple your people. And so, Lord, as we give ourselves this morning to the preaching of your word, I pray first that that you would be merciful to me, a fallible man called to preach your infallible word to your beloved people. Give me grace. And give grace to the hearers that all of us together would hear and understand and do your word for our good and your glory. Bear fruit today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are reformed. That's the first of our seven biblical values. What does that mean? When we say we are reformed, what do we mean by that? Well, let me begin with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we are paedo-baptists. We don't baptize infants. We believe that Scripture teaches baptism is for believers as an outward expression of obedience to an inward work of grace. And so we baptize believers. Second, to say we are reformed doesn't mean that we are cessationist. We don't believe that some gifts have ceased to exist in the church today. We believe Scripture teaches that all gifts remain and are for the church's good until Christ returns, according to 1 Corinthians 1.8. Now, both, you say, why is he met? Well, both paedo-baptism and cessationism Those are common Reformed convictions that we would believe are inconsistent with Scripture. So when we say we are Reformed, we're not saying we are paedo-baptists nor cessationists. When we say we are Reformed, here's what we mean. And I'm going to read this. By the way, this is on our website uh, under our seven shared values if you want to visit it this week. But here's what it means when we say we are Reformed. Scripture presents the all-glorious triune God is the source and end of all things. 
sovereignly working all things according to his will. At the center of God's purposes in the world is the exaltation of his glory through the redemption of sinners. To this end, we believe that God sovereignly chooses men and women to be saved in order to display his immeasurable grace and glory. God's sovereign grace in salvation humbles us, fills us with gratitude, and compels us to worship him and share the message of his grace to all people. Again, you can find that on our church website under seven shared values. We are reformed, as this paragraph says, because we believe in the sovereignty of God, in the salvation of sinners. And at the heart of that conviction is the doctrine of election, which in a sentence, I've tried to define it down to a sentence, and this is what I've come up with. In a sentence is God's divine choice precedes our human response to grace or our human response to the gospel. Again, reading in our statement of faith, we, we have a statement on God's grace in election. It says this, God in his great love before the foundation of the world chose those whom he would save in Christ Jesus. God's election is entirely gracious and not at all conditioned upon forcing faith, obedience, perseverance, or any merit in those whom, in those whom God has chosen. His decision is to set his saving love on the elect is based entirely on his sovereign goodwill and pleasure. The number of God's elect is fixed for eternity, and no one who has been chosen by God will be lost. In the mystery of his will, God passes over the non-elect without withholding his mercy and punishing them for their sins as a display of his holy justice and wrath. Election is a mystery, and difficult questions surround it. We're not going to get to all of them this morning. My goal is to give us handles to understand why we are reformed. That is why we believe that God's decision, his sovereign choosing, precedes our response to the gospel. If you want to go deeper on what you hear this morning, then I would encourage you. This is our statement of faith. There is they are available out in the lobby, and I would encourage you to study this. If you just take that paragraph that I just read on election, there are 39 verses in the footnotes connected to what I read. So that'll keep you busy for a while. Uh, start here. Uh, if, if you want to go further, you can, I, I would recommend this book by Sam Storms, Chosen for Life, The Case for Divine Election. One of the best books. It is accessible. It is readable. It will force you to open up your Bible. One of the best books that I have read that, uh, um, without getting overly technical on understanding the doctrine of election. Or you can buy your pastor's coffee. <laughs> we love to talk about this kind of stuff, and we would love to share with you why we believe what we believe as a church. But today, from Ephesians 1, I want to submit three primary reasons we are convinced of the doctrine of election, and they center around man, God, and Christ. 
and they explain why we are reformed. So here we go from Ephesians 1. First reason that we believe in the doctrine of election. Election is the only answer to the sinner's greatest need. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's assertion here is absolutely astounding. If we just pause and think about what he is saying, he is saying when you heard the truth of the gospel and believed by grace through faith, the blessings of heaven were opened and poured out on you. I think the picture here is, you, you know, you can stand, you ever seen those shoots? You stand and you got a little string and you pull that and something just dumps down water or slime or whatever it is. You've seen those game shows, right? Now that's the picture here. That the moment that we believed that, that in Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the blessings, not just earthly blessings of this life, he says the blessings of heaven were poured out Upon us. And what are those blessings? Well, that's what Paul goes on to explain in this text. He, 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 he just goes on all the way through verse 13, stacking blessing upon blessing. Notice the text there. Verse 5, adoption. By the way, each one of these are their own sermon series, okay? You want a nice personal Bible study, just take each one of these. You'll be busy for the next year, trust me. Verse 5, the blessing of adoption. The blessing of redemption in verse 7. Again in verse 7, the blessing of forgiveness. Spiritual wisdom and insight in verse 9. Heavenly inheritance. Verse 11, the Holy Spirit, God himself, verse 13. Moving into the home of your heart, taking over as a seal and guarantee of the gospel work that he began, and he will be faithful to complete <laughs> heavenly blessings. The moment you believed in Christ, Paul says, they were poured out on you. And if we can just pause here, whatever you lack physically today, Whatever you lack materially this morning, whatever your struggles in your faith are today, these blessings by faith belong to you. And no one can take them from you. They are irreversibly yours. Because God has poured them out on you. So let that soak in. Now, they haven't always been yours. Romans 3, verse 9 through 18 says that at one time, and he's talking about every believer, every believer in this room, that at one time, you were void of any desire for God. 
You were unrighteous, wholly unrighteous. You had no desire, period, for God. Romans 3. If you go to Colossians 1, verse 21, Paul says that once you were hostile toward God, you were alienated from him. You had no part in these blessings. Romans 5.10 says, when you were yet still enemies of God. And then there's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Look at that with me. And you, he's writing to Christians, okay? He's writing to those who he's speaking of in chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. He says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Did you catch that? The sinner, apart from God, is spiritually dead. I love Paul's clarity there. Dead. Not spiritually weak. Not spiritually disadvantaged. Not spiritually deficient. Paul says, and you too, Christian, were once spiritually dead. Translation, absolute inability. Absolute inability to understand, desire, or choose God. What can a dead person do? Nothing. I don't mean to be too out of line, but if you kick a corpse, it doesn't kick back. A dead person does nothing. Because the dead person is dead. And Paul says, that was you. The imagery he wants his readers to get in their head when he helps them understand before Christ, this was you spiritually. You were a zombie. You were walking, but you were dead. This is, this is the imagery that Paul puts in our head. Now listen, and he says that was by our nature. Did you notice that in verse three? By your, and by your nature. In other words, by virtue of being born, being a human being. And, and we do not have time to get into that, so I'm gonna recommend you go to Romans 5, 12 through 14 this week to learn what that means and how your spiritual deadness is linked to Adam, okay? But for this morning... Paul says you were spiritually dead and therefore you were spiritually doomed. Verse three, and were by nature children of God's wrath. So here's the question of the day. How did I get from Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 
spiritually dead, to Ephesians 1.3. If I was once spiritually dead, how do I now live in the blessings of the heavenlies? What, what is, why is my reality changed and the reality of the kid that I ran around getting in trouble with in high school hasn't changed? Did I finally figure it out? Am I smarter than the average bear? Did I finally come to the end of my rope and say, I got to do something with my life? Well, Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 gives us the answer. Notice what Paul says. He says, in love, he, that is God, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose you. The, the, the answer to how does one get from Ephesians 2, 1, 3, spiritually dead and unable to respond to God, to, to being in the heavenly blessings of God, the answer is God chose you. If you've ever wondered what God was doing before there was light, before there was a single star hanging in the sky, Here's the answer. Now you know. God was setting, according to Ephesians 1, 4-6, God was setting his affections on you, predestining you to heaven, determining your eternal destination with him before you or creation existed by electing or choosing you out from fellow sinners Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, bound for hell. Scripture teaches us that we went from spiritually dead and doomed to heavenly blessings. Not ultimately because we chose him, we couldn't. We were spiritually dead in our sin. Our hearts were hardened. Something needed to happen to us if we were going to be able to see our need and run to the Lord, we couldn't choose God. God chose us. You see, election is the only answer. It's the only logical answer. It's the only rational answer to the sinner's greatest need condemned before God, a child of wrath, and dead in my sin. Election is the only answer. That's why we are reformed. Second, we are reformed because election reflects the glory of God and the greatest purpose of God. Now, you, you might, you've probably heard this argument before, but some believe that God's greatest concern is a person's ability to choose their own destiny, that, that there is glory in the ability to choose for yourself. This is reflected, uh, one way this is explained is a, a view of salvation that's known as the prescient view. And, and this is a view, if you're unfamiliar with it, this is a view that, that would say that, yes, indeed, God does choose, but here's how he chooses. God looks down 
God is not bound by time, right? So God looks down through the corridors of time and sees who it is that will respond to him in faith and repentance. God chooses that one. Now, if that's true, then my human response actually precedes God's divine choice, right? And if that's true, then the glory for my salvation ultimately belongs to who? Me. You see that? That's logical. That's rational. Here's the problem. From the beginning of the Bible to the end, there is one pervasive and dominant theme. You know what it is? It's God's glory. Isaiah 42 8 says, I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other. Translation, God is passionately jealous for his glory. We see that from beginning to end of God's word. God is jealous for his glory, and he has ordained all things, his providence, that is bringing all things to the intend, his intended purposes, he has ordained that all things work out in such a way that he alone can be glorified. So let me ask you this. In the greatest, in the, if that's true, then in the greatest purpose that God has revealed to mankind, which, by the way, I believe is redeeming a people to worship him for eternity, everything in God's purposes move toward that. Why? Why would God devise a plan where man gets the final glory. That can't be. He would no longer be God. You would become God ultimately if you work that out to its logical conclusion. In fact, Paul helps us see this in Ephesians 1. Notice his focus. In verse 3, he said, blessed be. You could translate that Praise to God or glory to God. And so right up front, Paul establishes everything I'm about to say, there's one person that gets the glory for the work of salvation I'm about to impact. There's one person that gets, there's one name that gets the glory for all the heavenly blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus. It is God himself. He goes on in verse 5, he says, in love, he predestined for adoption in Jesus Christ. Why? to the praise or the glory of his glorious grace. Then in verse 11, notice what Paul does. He says, we've been predestined according to the counsel of God, another according to his will. And then verse 12, he gives us the reason why it's according to his will. So that, do you notice that? So that, in other words, purpose, because... So that we might be 
Not to the praise of our own glory, not to the praise of the preacher's glory, not to the praise of the one who shared the gospel with us, not to the Sunday school teacher's glory, but to the praise of God's glory, Paul says. In other words, God devised a plan of salvation that would give him glory alone. And then finally, look how Paul wraps this section up in verse 14. He says, we will all acquire our inheritance in heaven, what? To the praise of our glory? To the praise of his glory. So whether it's before the foundations of the world were created, or it is today, or it is eternity in heaven, God's glory is the point. So what we see here in the greatest salvation passage in Scripture, you and I are passive, (laughs) and God is extremely active. We receive the heavenly blessings, but God receives the eternal glory so that there is no room for human boasting in our salvation. And God is infinitely wise. He has all the bases covered. And so he begins from choosing an eternity past to bringing us to our inheritance in heaven. It's all from God, it's all by God, and it's all for God's glory. And election reflects and ensures God's glory in his greatest purpose, creating a people for himself. That's why we're reformed. Third, we are reformed because election preserves the grace of the gospel. We we, we clearly see the glory of God in election. But, But we aren't finished. We aren't finished until we see the goodness of God in it as well. Remember, when you didn't want God, Romans 3, 9 through 18. When you didn't think you needed God. When you were gladly running away from God. And we can all remember that, can't we? I know some of our stories are more dramatic than others. I can remember that day. It's here. God is a gift doesn't allow my life before I came to him to ever leave my mind. It's there with me to remind me constantly that there was a day when I was doomed and could do nothing to make it right. And so out of millions lost, we sang about it this morning, God mercifully reached out to you and brought you to himself. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who painted the picture of people running, masses running away from somebody standing on the front porch of a home. And he said, 
God's on the front porch and his people are running, passionately running away from him, he reaches out and begins to bring some to himself. Now listen, in the argument of fairness, and I'm willing to have that conversation with anybody in this room, but the doctrine of election reminds us, the doctrine of man's inability, what we do deserve, reminds us that fairness would condemn everybody to hell. And so when we talk about the doctrine of election, fairness isn't the question. What some people would say is unfair, Scripture says, that's amazing grace. (laughs) That's divine love. That is undeserved mercy. When we understand from Scripture who we were before God mercifully saved us. Out of millions lost, God chose to give you a new heart. That's, that's regeneration. That irresistibly inclines you to willingly come to Christ in repentance and faith as you heard the good news of the gospel. That's conversion. Giving you peace with God. Justification. And setting you on a path of progressively becoming more like Jesus. Sanctification. Until that day he returns and you will be perfected in the presence for eternity. Glorification. There you go. Your golden chain of salvation. Your reformed soteriology. Your doctrine of salvation. All in one long sentence. Question. Remember what the point is. Tim says, sometimes you lose sight of your point, Derek, so I'm just going to remind you. Election ensures the integrity of the grace of the gospel. So question, how can a holy and just God choose, justify, sanctify, and glorify sinners and still be holy and just? Well, I would submit you to go read Romans 3. But for this morning, from Ephesians 1, the answer is this, in Christ. In Christ. Did you notice in our text as we read it, nine times in our text, Paul, and actually a couple other ones that are indirect statements of in him. Nine times in our text, Paul says, in him or in Christ. Verse 3, 4, 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, twice in 13. Paul wants to impress upon us as tremendously important and a wonderful reality for the believer. We are chosen on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. We have the heavenly blessings in Christ alone. Who we are, all we have is because we are in Christ. God did not choose us based on anything in us. He did not look down the corridors of time and see our movement toward him and determine, therefore, I will return in kind of favor and move toward them. No. No. 
He chose us, and he is just in choosing us because he chose us on the merit and basis of Jesus Christ and his work in the gospel. It's a merit that is ours. It belongs to us, but it is, it, it is not infused. It is imputed. It is not our own, yet we bear it like a robe. And before the throne of God, it is our own. It's the merit of Jesus Christ that comes through the grace of the gospel. Listen, we, we, we have all we need and we are all we must be before God in Christ through the gospel. If that's not true, then there's no need for the gospel. Forgiveness of sin, only in Christ through the gospel. Righteousness that satisfies God's holiness, only in Christ through the gospel. God's eternal approval, only in Christ through the gospel. God's every promise, yes and amen, only in Christ through the gospel. And one is in Christ only through the grace of the gospel. You can't study your way to God. The doctrine of election saves no one. It helps those who are saved understand how they got saved. That's why ultimately as we unpack these doctrines, next week's the big sermon. Pressure's on Tim. That's why I had him preach it. Because ultimately, these things over the next few weeks, they define us, but, what old they, but they only define us because they flow from and are in some way manifestations of what truly defines us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if you're, don't miss next week. You can't, but you can't study your way to God. You can't serve your way to God. You can't social justice your way to God. You can't give your way to God. You can't be good enough for God to say, okay, you are good enough. (laughs) This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. The only way to God for sinners like you and I is to be in Christ. And the only way to be in Christ is through the grace of God of the gospel. Why? We heard it this morning in pre-service prayer, so that no one may boast except in the electing purposes of God through the power of the gospel to the eternal glory of God according to the perfect word of God. That's why we're reformed. If you're wondering why we're reformed, if you're wondering what does that mean, there you go. That's what that means. We're not reformed because Sovereign Grace Churches is reformed. We're not reformed because we love the tulip. We're not reformed because, oh, well, the really smart guys were all reformed that went before us. No, we're reformed because when we open up this book, we see those things that the reformers spoke about. We see those things that cling to our hearts in here. That means being reformed 
is just about believing what God has said about himself and us. <laughs> so, as we close here, I want to share a couple ways that this has profound implications for us as a church. And I'm not going to unpack them here. I'm going to ask your community group leaders to do that, have discussions uh, in the month of August uh, about these things. But, but four things, write them down, four things. Profound implications when we say we are reformed. Number one, personal sanctification. The doctrine of election kills pride and cultivates humility. As a recent president said one time, you didn't build that. Remember that? Well, God says right here, you didn't do that. You didn't build that treasure chest of heavenly blessings for yourself. There is no self-made Christian when you look at the scriptures. Election reminds us it is all of God. And nothing kills our pride and cultivates our humility like recognizing, I didn't do this. And if we're called to a life of progressive sanctification, that just means more and more being formed into the image of Christ. That begins with having the mind of Christ, which Paul said when he wrote to the Philippians, that begins with humility. You want to grow in humility? Study the doctrine of election. Two, corporate worship. Listen, if you don't walk out of today feeling really small and more importantly, God seeming really big, then you're you're not listening. And I pray the Spirit gives you ears to hear. And when we gather on Sunday mornings, it's not about us. It's not about our ministry. We are a humble little church with a small little property. We thank God for it, but there's nothing special about us except for the one that we gather and worship every Sunday morning. So you want to come and you feel like, yeah, I just I'm going through the motions on Sunday morning and oh, I just I can't I want to sing, but I don't. And why is Tim always dancing up there? He seems so happy. <laughs> Study the doctrine of election. It will fuel your corporate worship. Three, fellowship with one another. It has huge implications on our fellowship with one another. Election provides assurance in times of spiritual discouragement, and it triggers thankfulness towards God even in the toughest trials. And while we can't even begin to think how hard it was to be a believer in the first century, It's increasingly getting harder for us. And the doctrine of election offers great hope and fuels, cultivates, produces thankfulness in our hearts. Finally, evangelism. Evangelism. Listen, we're not hyper Calvinists. We don't say, if God chooses, then why evangelize? No, the fact that the doctrine of election is in the pages of Scripture, that fuels our event. It gives us confidence 
to share the gospel, which Paul said was the power unto salvation in Romans 1.16. Why? See, election motivates us to evangelistic faithfulness and passion, knowing this. As we share Christ with anyone we can, God will be faithful to save everyone he has chosen. So the burden is not on you and I. The burden is on God. We are faithful disciples, stewarding the message of Jesus Christ and being lights in our neighborhoods and in our schools and at the soccer parks and in our community and in our workplaces. That's what it's about. We just tell people about Jesus, and I don't know who he's going to save and who he isn't. I just know that, that, not one, that he will save those whom he calls and that not one of them will be lost. So therefore, I am just an ambassador, a mouthpiece, declaring the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen, we are reformed for one reason. Scripture teaches that God's divine choice proceeds our human response to the gospel. It can't be any other way if we find the way in here.